I want you to think about something as we start. Do leaders lead or follow? Do leaders lead or follow? To get you thinking about that, I've got a bit of a video here for you. That's not true. You know, in 1998, I did a cover story for GQ. The title was Youngest Congressman Ever. And since then, every story has tried to explain how I got here so fast. And the, and the word that people kept uh, using was authentic. Uh, but here's the problem. This isn't even my tie. This tie was selected for me by a group of specialists in Tenafly, New Jersey, who chose it over 56 other ties we tested. In fact, our data suggests that I have to stick to either a tie that is red or a tie that is blue. A yellow tie made it look as if I was taking my situation lightly, and I may, in fact, pull my pants down again at any moment. <laughs> a silver tie meant that I'd forgotten my roots my shoes, you know, shiny shoes, we associate with uh, high-priced lawyers and bankers. If you want to get a working man's vote, you need to scuff up your shoes a little bit. But you can't scuff them up so much that you alienate the lawyers and the bankers because you need them to pay for the specialist back in Tenafly. <laughs> so what is the proper scuffing amount? Do you know we actually paid a consultant $7,300? Was, was it $7,300, Charlie? $7,300 for a consultant to tell us that this is the perfect amount of stuffing. Yes, it's a movie, but I think all of us will recognise that that's pretty close to reality. Someone defined leadership merely as managing people's expectations, making you happy. If you think about politics, can I be a little bit cynical at the moment, but... We're Australians, and so we do cynicism really well. Um, I would like to suggest that most politicians, they promise us what they think we want to hear so that we will actually vote for them. And then if we do vote for them and they get in, they spend their entire time in government telling us why they haven't actually been able to deliver us the thing that they promised us, and they're trying to convince us that we still should vote for them. And we eventually change government uh, when we no longer believe the stories that are coming. Michael Lunig captured it perfectly in a little cartoon. He said, you can fool some of the people all of the time. You can fool all of the people some of the time, but you only need to fool a majority of the people for one day every few years, and you've got a democracy. A little bit cynical, but sometimes we can think of a leader's job is actually to make us happy to do what we want, to fit in with our agendas. But that's following, not leading. Revolutions don't start at the centre. Someone at the edge with a compelling vision, someone at the end promising something new, going against the grain, upsetting the status quo. Jesus of Nazareth was a revolutionary. But when he came on the scene, the Jewish people had an awful lot of expectations about the Messiah, God's promised king. Rodney Stark, the Christian historian, says it like this. 
Some expected a serene and spiritual Messiah who would accomplish his mission in a miraculous fashion. But many more expected a fierce, invincible warrior Messiah who would destroy the pagan nations. To put it visually, more this than this. People had expectations of the Messiah. We have expectations of the Messiah. We've been reading through Matthew chapters 1 to 4, which I brought to your attention, really act as a prologue like the Lord of the Rings prologues. You know those bits before the action happens? Jesus in chapter 4 here, we're starting to see him do something, aren't we? But all the time up until now, Matthew has been giving us the information that we need to actually get our expectations straight, to know what to expect. So what do you expect from Jesus? He's given us the backstory, hasn't he? Jesus inheritor of the promises to Abraham and to David, the king of God's kingdom, worshipped by the nations as the Magi come in. He is God's son. He is the true Israel. He is the suffering servant. What do you expect from Jesus? Well, Jesus is not a politician. I don't think Jesus ever would have got elected for anything in his day. Jesus is not in the business of managing expectations. He simply will not play by the rules. He won't play by the rules by working in the right place. He won't play by the rules by working with the right people. And he won't play by the rules by doing the whole Messiah thing in the right way. Let's look at Matthew chapter 4 verse 12. When Jesus heard that John, that's John the Baptist, had been put in prison uh, by King Herod, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Jesus hears that John the Baptist had been locked up in prison and he moves his base of operation from Judea down in the south, where John was based near the Jordan, up to Galilee in the north. Now, Jesus is not running away. The same king, Herod, ruled the same, both areas. So he's not trying to get out of Herod's, Herod's reach. He's deliberately going to Galilee. And Matthew records for us that he moves his base of operations from Nazareth to Capernaum. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, these are very familiar names. But let me put it in Australian or maybe even South Australian terms. It's kind of like moving from Kimber to Wyala, from where to nowhere, like moving from Bullier in southwest Queensland that none of you have ever heard of to the metropolis of Mount Isa. You're kind of like, Jesus, where, where's the action? Galilee was a nowhere place. All the people down south, all the people who knew anything about what messiahs were meant to do. Jesus was meant to be down in Judea. But he deliberately places himself in Galilee in the north. He goes to Galilee, not Judea. He goes to Capernaum, not to Jerusalem. He simply won't act in the right place. 
neither will he act with the right people. Because the people of Galilee, they were a mixed bunch. And I mean literally. Down the south in Judea, you have the remnants of the tribes of Benjamin and Judah with a little bit of Simeon thrown in. That was the southern kingdom of Judah that was taken into exile by the Babylonians and then Cyrus, the Persian king, let them come back and settle in that region that we know in New Testament times as Judea. They were Jewish. They had the temple. They had the city. They had all that stuff. But up the north, that was the old northern kingdom of Israel. And the Assyrians were not as nice as the Persians and the Babylonians. They had just deported the ten tribes at the north and taken them away. And they had largely disappeared. And so what they did is they repopulated that area and it ended up as a mix of Greek and Jewish and Arab. It was a real hodgepodge. And the people down south despised them. They were kind of like, and I'm going to cause offence, I'm sorry, I did it, I did it at nine. They're kind of like Queenslanders, really. You know how the rest of us look at Queensland and kind of go, there's something about those people. You know, is it any coincidence that, I'm not going to name them, that prominent public figures come from Queensland, of all places? Most of my relatives are Queenslanders, so I can bag them all I want. Uh, but it was that kind of thing. Do you remember Nathaniel in John chapter 1? He hears that Jesus of Nazareth, and he goes, Nazareth? What good can come from Nazareth? It's Queensland. It's out in the middle of nowhere. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. Jesus works with the wrong people in the wrong place. But Matthew makes it plain by quoting that passage out of Isaiah that this is God's way of doing it. And a bit later on, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says the same thing. He said, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised thing. God chose Nazareth and Capernaum. God chose Galilee of the Gentiles, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, the Judeas, the Jerusalems so that no one may boast before him. Brothers and sisters, if we're ever tempted to look down on other people, because, you know, we're so good, we're Christians, and they're not, what does this say about you? Foolish, weak, lowly, despised, things that are not. This is what the world sees us as, can I say, this is not necessarily God's appraisal. But this is how God works. He works not in the right place, not with the right people. I was at CMS Summer Encounter last week. I was reminded of a fact that I knew. But when you think about the Anglican church, what are the Anglican heartland? The United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, North America, Canada, 
There are more Anglicans in Nigeria than all of those put together. God doesn't look at what we look at. God doesn't work and play by our rules. Neither does he work in the right way. Let me explain. Even then and now in the present, Jesus cuts across the grain. Look at verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. Out of interest, Andrew is actually a Greek name. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing the nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. In Jesus' time... Rabbis didn't call disciples. Disciples chose rabbis. Imagine for those of us who are parents, you got a phone call from the local school saying, your children are coming to my school. You kind of go, hey, wait on, look, I'd be happy to talk about whether that's a possibility, but I'm the one that makes that decision. Jesus doesn't work that way. Normally the disciple chooses the master. Here we see Jesus turning that upside down. And he doesn't make a request. He doesn't come in and say, hey, James and John, Peter and Andrew, if you've got a bit of time, maybe after you've finished work and juggling other commitments, and I know you've got a game of, you, you've got a game of hockey a little bit later on or maybe some water polo or something like that, but if you've got some time, I'm actually running a Bible study between about 7.30 and quarter to, quarter to eight uh, at my place, you know, the place by the lake. He doesn't say that. He doesn't ask them to adjust their calendars to kind of squeeze him in. He actually turns their entire world on its head. He commands. He doesn't request. And his command cuts straight across work. These men are in the workplace and Jesus says, follow me, the implication now. Peter and Andrew, James and John, follow him straight away. James and John left their father, Zebedee, in the boat. Now, we're not that fussed about that. But in that day, that is huge. Because by following Jesus, they are saying, your claims trump the claims of my family. And family was everything. And Jesus cuts across it. Who does he think he is? He's not playing by the rules. He's not fitting in with the norms. And he doesn't do that for us either. Because the same Jesus who called Peter and Andrew, James and John, calls each of us. And he doesn't politely request that we find a spot for him when it suits us. He says, follow me. He calls for a radical commitment. But we're a bit sus about radicals, aren't we? We've seen the news. We know what religious fanaticism looks like. 
and we're polite, nice, middle-class hills dwellers. And we don't do things like that. We, you know, there's proper ways of doing things. You know, if we view perhaps religion on a scale, Christianity on a scale, and zero, you know, that's the person, they might tick the box on the census, but it, it makes no difference to their life. But 10 out of 10 is the Jesus freak, you know, the complete nut. Where do we want to be? When I became a Christian and started going to church, a member of my family said, go to church is great, Cameron, just don't take it too seriously. Famous last words, hey? But where do we want to put ourselves? Now, you've been around church, many of you, for long enough to know where you should put yourself. But your natural reaction, I think, and I think perhaps if you looked at your life and someone else was to say where it is, five, six, seven, you know that, everything in moderation, is that where we want to put Jesus? Jesus won't accept that. It's kind of like this. What future is there for that relationship? Guys, if you've got a girlfriend, fiancé, wife, girls, boyfriend, fiancé, husband, kind of say, look, I'll be 7 out of 10 faithful to you. See how that goes. Let me know later uh, as I give you some relationship counselling as you deal with the breakup of your marriage or your engagement or your relationship. Jesus isn't asking for seven. He's not asking for eight or nine. He's actually saying ten. Luke's gospel records these words about Jesus. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, husband in there, you could say as well, brothers and sisters, classmates, best friends, Bosses, workmates, yes, even their own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, we can get around this a bit by actually adding another category, and people used to do this. You know, you've got garden variety Christians, and then you've got the hardcore disciples. No, there is one type of Christian which is a disciple of Jesus. And he says, if you want to be a disciple, you must hate every other relationship. How do we understand this? I was talking about it last night with my kids. And uh, they reminded me of a kid's talk. So I'm going to give you the kid's talk. How do we reconcile hate your mother, father and everyone else with love your neighbor? Well, it's kind of like carrots and mangoes. You get that? I like carrots. I'm happy every time we have carrots for dinner. If I'm carving up carrots, julienning them on the board, there's probably as many that go into my mouth as go into the salad. I enjoy carrots. Carrots are always in the fridge. I never complain about carrots. If carrots aren't your thing, pick a vegetable that is your thing. But if you were to say to me, Cameron, carrots or mangoes? You can have one or the other. Which one wins? Mangoes will win Every single day of the week. I will never choose to eat a carrot over a mango. You wouldn't, would you? 
Yes. I used to work with a girl who ate so many carrots, she actually turned orange. And that's, that's, that's real. She started poisoning herself with carrots. But anyway, uh, nutcases aside, no one would. And that's what Jesus is saying. That even though you love all those others, your love for him trumps everything else. There is only one captain. There is only one king. You can't split allegiance. You can't double date with Jesus. It doesn't work. Because at some point, Jesus plus something else always comes into conflict. There has to actually be one person on the throne. And Jesus said, if you're going to be my disciple, it's me and nothing else. Because if you've got Jesus and something else, there will be a time where the claims of whatever it is, whether it's friendship, whether it's family, whether it's beauty, whether it's money, whether it's the job, whether it's status, whether it's comfort, whatever it is, Jesus' claims and those claims will come into conflict. And you will have to choose. You get an offer to go out with both girls at the same time, at the same night. You've got to choose. You can't go on both dates. Jesus says it doesn't work. To be his disciple, he said, is to die to die to yourself, to die to our small dreams, to die to the kingdom of me and live for the kingdom of God. Jesus here is saying, I am not focused on meeting your needs. My goal is not to keep you happy. I'm a king and I'm calling you to give me your allegiance. I am a teacher and I'm calling you to come and follow and learn from me. That's what Jesus is saying. And to do that, he calls us to repentance. That's his message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. One way of understanding repentance is to reorbit your life around Christ as king. He is the sun at the centre and you turn away from anything else that calls those shots. How do we see the king in action? Let's have a look. Let's read verse 23. This is a little summary. Matthew expands it later on in the gospel. But here we read that Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. First thing he does, he goes to those who are waiting or should be waiting and he tells them that he has come. Luke chapter 4 verses 14 to 30 is the account of Jesus in the synagogue at Nazareth and he's explaining that he is that servant that Isaiah spoke of. He is the one who has come to pronounce freedom to the captives. He is telling them, I imagine, that the kingdom has come. Explaining how God's prophets had foretold this. Not only that, he's proclaiming the gospel. Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. He's out there 
announcing, whether people want to hear it or not, the gospel is good news. It's something that tells us what God has done. And Jesus is announcing it. Now, a quick aside. There's a fairly famous quote that supposedly was from Francis of Assisi. Maybe you've heard it. I, to my shame, have quoted it. I'd like to publicly repent of doing that. Um, It says this. Preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. Have you heard this before? We kind of like it. Kind of sounds nice. Can I just say, Jesus found it necessary to use words. He was capable of doing deeds that we could not fathom. And he still proclaimed. We need to, as we think about sharing Christ with others, see that it is both word and deed together. I'm not saying word without deed. But I'm not saying deed without word, because that's not biblical. Preach the gospel. Live it and speak it at all times. Jesus proclaimed the gospel and he healed every disease and affliction. I'm not going to unpack that other than to say what we see in the ministry of Jesus is heaven breaking in. What we see in the ministry of Jesus is a foretaste of Revelation 21 and 22. You know, at the end of the Bible where the new Jerusalem descends to earth and there is that great passage. Let me just read it for you here. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, mourning, crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Jesus' ministry is a foretaste of that kingdom that will come fully at his return. Jesus doesn't play by their rules. He doesn't play by our rules. But he calls us to play by his rules. He calls his disciples. He says, follow me. James and John, follow me. Peter and Andrew, follow me. Each of us, follow me. What that word means is not just physically walking after Jesus, but being with him and learning from him. And that's what the disciples did. So what's it mean for us? To follow Jesus when we are not physically with him. He is here by his spirit and that is his promise. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. But what does it mean for us to be disciples of Jesus? It's a bit of a Sunday school answer, but we need to be reminded of it. The word of God must be central. How do we learn from our master We learn from his word. We ingest it. We digest it. We pray over it. We read it regularly. We read it daily. If we think we can live as disciples of Christ and not have the word of God central in our life, there is something wrong. 
we must commit to learn from it. Now, if you're like me, you don't always find reading the Bible the easiest thing in the world. And you probably go through fits and starts. Can I encourage you? God has given us his word. Our rabbi has given us his teaching. Make time. Make it a priority. Jesus said, follow him. Learn from him. I'm going to give you a suggestion. If you're not in a habit of using a particular method of Bible reading, many of us are. But this is a great resource. A company called the Good Book Company, you'll find them on the net. They put out daily Bible readings uh, under the heading of Explore. Uh, Lots and lots of different people contribute to them, including some big-name Christian pastors from around the world. Uh, Tim Keller, uh, Richard Koken, other people writing your own little personal Bible devotion notes, uh, along with a whole lot of other faithful, godly, wonderful Christian people that no one's ever heard of at all, but that doesn't matter. Uh, But these are a great resource. You can get them on your iPhone, you can get them on your iPad, you can get physical copies if you want. And they send you out, I believe, every quarter. Uh, Anne Eckerman uh, is a really good one to talk to because you use them, don't you, Anne? Uh, and she flagged them for me and I've had a look at them and they look great. Uh, so if you aren't in a system of doing it regularly, that's a good one to get on board with. So can I flag that for you? Jesus said, follow me. He not only calls his disciples, though, he commissions them. What does he say? Follow me and I will send you out. To do what? To fish for people. To rescue people from judgment, from hell, and to call them into the kingdom. Colossians chapter 1 talks about salvation as being rescued out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of his son. That is what we get involved in. Jesus calls us to be part of his team. He sends us out to make disciples of all nations, to teach them everything that he commanded. Jesus calls for our all. I want you to think... Some of us here have been Christians forever. Maybe our devotion to our master has slid. Maybe we've smuggled a few others in and we're really good at justifying why that's okay. You know, Jesus plus these other things. Maybe we've gone off the boil just a little bit. Why would you recommit? But for some of us, we've never committed the first time. Maybe we've been in church for a while, but we've never actually answered the call to follow Christ. Why would you do it when Jesus is asking, not for a bit, not for seven out of ten, he's asking for ten out of ten. He wants all of you. He wants to be the center. Why would you do it? Well, let me tell you why you wouldn't do it. 
You wouldn't do it out of guilt. You wouldn't do it out of obligation. You wouldn't do it, you know, to earn his love. Maybe I could do a few things for him and he might accept me. No matter how much you did, it is not enough. No matter how much you offered, it is not sufficient. So what would motivate you to say yes, not just once, but every single day? The only answer is love. The only answer is that you see the beauty of the king. You see that he was cast into darkness so that light could dawn on us. You see that the king was crowned, not with gold and glory, but with thorns. He was praised, not by the crowds, adoring, but in mockery by the Roman soldiers, bowing down, hail king of the Jews. He was announced, not by the royal heralds, but by the accusation above his head, nailed to the cross. When we see the beauty of our saviour, who is our king, who is our master, when we see the wonder of the salvation that opens the doors of the kingdom to us, that allows us to be invited in, we who deserve nothing other than his condemnation, we, had we been there, who would have said, crucify him, we have no king but Caesar. Because our king was crucified, the invitation is offered. And by his grace, we can accept. So why would you? Because of his love for you. And by his spirit, that love welling up in us and overflowing in a life of obedience. Brothers and sisters, do you love him? And will you live for him? Let's pray. Father, we know that we deserve nothing from your hand other than judgment. You tell us that all have sinned and fall short of your glory. But Father, the Lord Jesus came and lived and died and rose. That the gates of glory, not the gates of shame, might open for us. That we might be welcomed in and not cast out. That we might be raised up and not cast down. Father, I pray for each of us that you would show us the wonder and the beauty and the majesty of the King. That we would know his grace in our life. And by your spirit, you would give us all everything we need to live each day for him. 
And in his most precious name we pray. Amen.